Hello and welcome to Tools in the Shed, a podcast powered by Cars Guide, ready to rip into car stuff that's caught our eye this week. I'm Cars Guide Deputy Editor James, and with me is our Managing Editor, Head of Video, Matt. Hello. And Key Contributor, Mr. Stephen Otley. G'day, g'day. This week, we're looking at Mazda's determination to head up market and whether the strategy is paying off. We'll discuss a trio of recent entries to the Cars Guide garage, and we'll catch up with that crazy cat set to extend the light of consciousness to the stars in this week's Musk Watch. Um, YouTubers, you can jump ahead courtesy of the time codes in the notes below, and you can click on the chapter markers in the timeline. But before we get going, Stephen, tell us about that picture behind us. We were just talking off air. What yeah. is going on? What is going on behind you? Yeah, so this guy up here, where was my hand on? This one, this is my great-grandfather, a man by the name of Donald Harkness. Um, he was uh, quite a talented engineer and uh, racing car driver back in the 1920s and 30s. A um, couple of big claim to fames where he was the first person to break 100 miles an hour officially in Australia. There was a competition uh, set that record at Jerngong Beach. And uh, he also competed in the first Australian Grand Prix. Well, that is the debatable one, whether whether the Grand Prix, the Grand Prix was officially at uh, Goulburn in 1927, but the, wow. obviously there's a, there's a dispute that it was 1928 at Phillip Island, so that's a bit of a long story. But, uh, yeah, this, this particular car is um, his predominant race car. With, that's at Penrith Speedway, but he also raced it at the famous uh, Olympia Speedway in Maroubra in Sydney. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's a big concrete bowl. Yeah, uh, that was pretty uh, pretty dangerous. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, he's a fascinating. That is bloke. incredible. Yeah, that's amazing, yeah. and it's got that that period kind of effect where cars, it's a stationary shot, but you can just get that speed. It's kind of elongated, yeah. and it's got it's got a bit of positive camber going on the front axle there as well, which is uh, yeah, yeah. kind of exciting. Yeah, that is a uh, heavily modified uh, Overland. So it's got like, if you actually Unreal. see, I've got a photo of it lined up against its competitors and the competitors, you know, have that classic 1920s, you know, big uh, boxy radiator where he, you can see there that he's uh, modified it and given it a bit of more aerodynamic shape. So yeah, he was, he was, he was a clever guy. But I'm yeah. definitely at the shallow end of that gene pool. That's right. Oh, the, yeah, the strands of the DNA peeled away as the, de- the decades passed. Um, an engineer nor a race car driver. <laughs> well, that is amazing. That is fantastic. Thank you. But um, let's go. And our, our main topic uh, for this week is Mazda. And our own Chesto has authored a couple of stories recently. Um, the most recent one focusing on reports out of Japan that the next Mazda CX-5 is going to wave goodbye to the Toyota RAV4 uh, and go after the likes of BMW with its X5 and X6, um, an altogether bigger vehicle, uh, more powerful, and two different body styles, similar. This is where the X5, X6 thing comes in, uh, a more traditional SUV shape and a, and a coupe-style body, Inline straight, uh, sorry, inline six-cylinder engine, um, and a, this sportier twin is going to be called the CX50, allegedly. And the big question is whether or not Mazda's seemingly determined push into a more premium space uh, will work and is sustainable. So I want to get you, uh, you guys, in on that conversation and see what you think. Um, I would say, starting off, uh, I think Mazda, in a lot of people's minds, is already in a premium realm um they they're getting a sort of semi-premium interior experience uh which a lot of people really like when you sit in a mazda no matter the price point you sort of feel like you're sitting something that uh is a bit more special and there's a bit more thought and style to it um if you sit in the equivalent say uh kia or hyundai you get more sort of thick black plastic stuff uh i'm thinking the likes of say a cx30 versus a kona or something like that um and i think in a lot of people's minds um also the styling has a lot to do with that uh, you know that push towards premium there's maybe um the the styling does sort of uh eat into the interior practicality of a lot of their cars um but also uh, it has a really good family look to it um but, yeah, I think the, the idea of 
Mazda moving towards uh, BMW sort of levels is maybe a little bit far-fetched. Um, I see um, Mazda more playing against the likes of um, the semi-premium Euros, like the Volkswagen, um, even Skoda in our market. Um, is bit of, bit of, bit of Volvo? Of, bit of Volvo yeah, reckon? a bit of Volvo. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and in the past, we've done a comparison test uh, between a Lexus, uh, Mazda and a Volvo. Um, that was a CX-30, XC-40 and UX. Um, and the idea of that was to see whether Mazda does stack up as an alternative to the premiums because, you know, in some of their models, their prices are creeping up to that um, sort of premium price point zone. Um, but, you know, also the likes of, yeah, Volkswagen, um, Skoda, Peugeot, those sorts yep. of brands. Um, yep. And I, I do, like, as much as I love Chesto's newshound nature on this, um, <laughs> this sort of stuff, I have to yep. call out... Um, you know, calling it a, a an X5 and X6 rival is probably a little bit misleading. Um, in terms of the tail of the tape, the you know, the measuring tape, the size of this next generation car, according to the reports out of Japan, is 4620 millimetres long, 4620 millimetres long. So that's actually shorter than a current generation X3. So it's nowhere near X5 in size, okay. nor X6. Okay. It's, it's yeah. more X3 and X4. And I think that's probably the right sort of um, game for that car to be playing. But yeah. on that new platform with the new six-cylinder engine, um, it's, yeah, there's, there's some interesting stuff about to happen. What do you reckon, well, Steve? Uh, as, as, Chester, as Chester would say, never let a wheelbase or an overall length get in the way of a good story. But, um, Steve, <laughs> um, you know... Um, yeah, Matt was just just throwing to you. It's as much about the emotion of the thing, isn't it? Like the brand is is the Mazda brand something that people will pay a premium price for? I think they will in Australia. I think you know if you look at Mazda and how Mazda has performed in Australia in the last you know decade, that's they haven't they haven't tried to do this overnight. There's been a subtle push and evolution of the brand. And it kind of reminds me of, you remember this, like, you know, Honda back in the late 80s, early 90s. They had a lot of, they, they had that semi premium that was sort of the Japanese BMW. And, Absolutely. You know, yeah, cars like the Prelude and the Legend and things like that. So you know, there's an argument that can be made. You know, obviously that didn't work out so well for Honda in the end. You know, they moved away from that strategy, you know, or, or just, yeah. you know, people just didn't buy into it. But, you know, I think, you know, given Mazda's uh, their stand, their long-running stance of sort of moving away from those, you know, being driven by a, a price point and being and focused more on a ho- the higher-end models and the quality, you know, it could work. I think as you know, Australian customers have sort of accepted Mazda to a degree as you know already as a semi-premium brand. You know, oh, yeah. are, are they going to compete with BMW? You know, whether it's an X3 or an X5, I, I think that's, I think that is probably a bridge too far, but. Yeah. Um, as we move forward, I, you know, I can definitely see people being willing to spend that little bit more to get something a little bit nicer. Um, yep. uh, just out of interest, I uh, had a look at the uh, price points for, um, say, an entry-level X5 and an entry-level uh, CX5 in the US, which we all know is the measuring stick for how, how successful a brand is. Um, so uh, the current CX5... Uh, starts at twenty five thousand US dollars, okay. And the, the X five starts at fifty nine thousand four hundred. Whoa! So wow. I, I, yeah. I can't see Mazda going um, that premium. Yeah, <laughs> but, and that, that, that's um, that's big money in America. I mean, that's yeah. that's big bucks. Yeah, exactly. But I, think- but I also, oh, I was just going to say, I think that the the idea of them um, using. Uh, similar platforms to uh, build different bodies or top hats, as they call them in the industry, on uh, on top of new platforms, just makes sense. That's where the markets are going. Um, it makes sense because you amortise the costs quicker, uh, and also you can develop different body styles and play in niches, which is a really important part if you are a premium brand. Yeah. 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 The, the other thing I would add to this, though, is we've got for Mazda, you know, like, you know, so internationally, they probably have to do something different. They can't keep doing what they've been doing. Yes. And so maybe that is a more upmarket push to, you know, try and do better in the US, try and do better in Europe, because otherwise, you know, if you keep stagnating, then, you know, you're it's, sort of, it's interesting. 
It's a great point you make, Steve, because um, I don't know about you guys, but whenever you're in, uh, maybe it's Korea with um, Hyundai or, or Kia, um, the question inevitably comes, what is it about Mazda in Australia? Why is yeah. Mazda so successful in Australia? You're right. Mm-hmm. It is a bit of an outlier uh, and maybe a test case um, as to whether things will work. But I mean, typically a move to a more premium positioning means you're going to sacrifice a bit of volume um, for maybe some more um, um, margin on, on each car. Um, however, uh, Chester went on to re- report that February sales would indicate they're in a, um, a pretty strong second position in the market and more day-to-day products like BT50 are standing them in pretty good stead. So they're almost uh, being able to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah, yeah I mean, definitely. This is, this... You go, Seth. Yeah, yeah. And this is sort of what we're saying about Mazda. They, they have succeeded here. Australia is such a strong market for them. You know, the Australian consumer has, you know, they're, they're buying what they're selling. You know, they, they this semi-premium, slightly more upmarket uh, offering and, the, and the, the value equation, like you say, the value equation of, of, of a Mazda versus, yeah, a Lexus or a Volvo is pretty compelling. You know, like yeah. I think, yeah. you know, Australians, Australians are dummies. You know, they, they, can, they can see a good deal when they, when they spot it. And I think that's what is driving this. You know, I think, uh, you know, certainly there was a lot of stories written and there was a lot of questions asked when the latest Mazda 3 came out because they did yeah. shed a lot of sales. But, yeah. you know, from their point of view, if they can make, you know, similar profit or more profit yeah. by selling less cars, happy days. But if then, you know, like say you add, you know, if they can shift more BT50s and, and whatnot, then it's, it's just all gravy for them, isn't it? Yeah, and Mazda at the time was saying, okay, people may not be buying threes, but they're buying CX-5s or, or, you know, there are other options in our range. But I think to your point too, Matt, um, the design, it, they're looking, in to my eyes anyway, really interesting and uh, very sleek. But that Mazda 3 hatch, uh, the over-the-shoulder view, if you, if you want to try and catch the uh, opposite lane, yeah, you are compromised. So they're yeah. obviously putting style and image uh, very high in the priority list in terms of design. Definitely. And I think also the uh, one important point you made, Steve, is, uh, you know, Lexus and, and Volvo, uh, comparatively, the Mazdas stand up, but also you can't buy yourself a $25,000 Lexus or Volvo. So, which you can do if you're buying a Mazda a CX-3 or a Mazda 2, um, and even the lower grades of the CX-30 start at about $30,000, which is a good chunk yeah. under the the premium brands when it comes to yeah. starting points and that's how you get people in um they have a good experience with your brand and then they stick with you and that's the hope that these sorts of brands have um yeah. and on the um on the sales stuff um i noted uh yeah the the bt50 um i think there's a few factors with bt50 um selling pretty well in february so yeah. it was a thousand and fifteen sales uh for the month um now that is less than what Mazda told us they're hoping to get per month. Um, okay, and yeah. that is uh, between twelve and thirteen hundred a month, um, based on sort of seven to eight percent market share. Um, now the point is, uh, I think there's also a few buyers out there who maybe have gone. I can't wait six to 12 months for a D-Max X-Terrain. So I might get a Mazda to tide me over. Or right. maybe the Mazda is just as good an option for some people yep. out there. Um, yep. And it is, you know, the ute market's cutthroat. So you can't, you can't escape the fact that there's just people out there that will buy what they need whenever they need it. And shift wholesale to, to whatever is right at that minute. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a yeah. point. The, look, the other thing I'd like to say is you can almost invert this um, if you look at the likes of Mercedes-Benz, who over decades has gradually crept down into a more mainstream part of the market. You know, you've got Mazda with aspirations going up. Merck has slipped in, you know, okay, it started with A-Class, but then there's a whole range of models available uh, around that that makes it much more affordable and realistic choice for people. So there's a blurring both ways for sure. Mm -hmm. And also it's hugely profitable to have a small platform and build seven models off it. That's massively profitable because you're using so much of the same parts across different bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, ask yeah. Leo Coca in the, I want to say, late 70s, early 80s, the K-series, I think, with Chrysler. He was a master of that. Brought them yeah. uh, back from the, from the brink. Uh, yeah. But I think the other good job that Mazda has done is at the retail 
kind of interface. They've built a really great network of dealers that provide, you know, I've had firsthand experience of it from time to time, that provide terrific um, customer experience and that goes to underpinning a premium positioning as well. You really need to back it up, not only with the product but the whole experience right the way through. And yeah, I um, think Jesto, I, sorry, Steve, <laughs> Jesto um, had a, uh, a, an experience like that himself when he had his CX30 long-termer. Um, if you watch the video review of that, um, you'll find it on our YouTube channel if you're watching there. Um, there's uh, interesting footage that he was sent when he took the car in for its first service. Um, and so they send you a video file basically showing you what they're doing and um, running you through the, the car. What? what right. Yeah, the, the, the tyre, um, you know, the tyre status, um, you know, letting you know if there are any potential issues. There weren't any, obviously, because it's only got 10,000 Ks on it. But, um, yeah, it was it was really interesting to see just the, the different approach and, like, they gave him a voucher to go up the street to the cafe and grab a coffee and some brekkie. And um, he was in and out within an hour, which, you know, wow. that's, they understand that um, time is precious um and that's a really important part of a uh, uh, luxury ownership experience yeah i think i was gonna say i think we've we've moved to this era where cars are generally pretty good right there's not a lot of cars we drive that are just like a complete dud and <laughs> so the difference is how you treat your customers right like and i think that the you know as much as we you know sometimes have a laugh about this idea of the the brand experience you know i think it's important i think that's super important for people when they buy a car to have that, you know, good ownership experience where it's, it's, it's easy, it's convenient, it's, you know, it's trouble free. Mm. Um, and it feels a bit easy. You know, we see that now with, you know, other brands like, you know, like Genesis trying to into the luxury market, trying to do stuff way out there, like their concierge service, you know, like Lexus has done the same thing. Like we're now having to really push the boundaries beyond just the cars and into like a whole new realm of, of the customer experience and everything around the brand to mm. entice customers to A, come and B, stay. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think you make a good point about there being, you know, very few truly bad cars. I think the, don't know about you guys, the worst car I've ever driven, new car, is a, is a photo finish tie between the Brock Lada Samara and <laughs> the um, FSM 650 Nikki. They, they were equally horrendous the samara started to actually disintegrate around me as i was driving it um it Ooh. was that bad so um you're wow. right the pro the product is universally uh pretty good it's all about the experience and and mazda seems to deliver a very good job on that score yeah definitely all right well that's that's a really interesting conversation and it'd be great to get people's feedback are you a current mazda um, owner what's your experience been how do you see Mazda as a brand in the marketplace? Is it one you're willing to pay a premium on? Uh, let us know your thoughts. That'd be great. But we are going to now move to our own garage. And Stephen, I want to start with you, please. Tell us about the vehicle that you've been driving recently. Right. So I have, it's interesting you just brought up the worst cars I've ever driven because I, oh, now, now to be fair, wow. Burn. this is not going to, the one of the worst cars I've ever driven was a, a cherry J1. I think it was called the J1, the little hatchback thing. And it yeah, was yep. one of the one of the first Chinese cars to try and have a crack in your tremor. And it was yep. pretty, pretty average. You know, like yep. a, I don't think I don't think the I think the interior might have been designed by six or seven different people that did not talk to each other. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I, I bring that up because I the car I had been driving is the uh the Chinese, uh, although it sounds British, but the MG ZS EV, um, yep. Yep. which I think shows how far the Chinese have come in a relatively short period of time. I and mean, I was actually, you know, obviously as the name suggests, it's a it's an electric car. Um, and it is one of the most affordable electric cars you can buy. Uh, it's yep. 43,990, um, which is pretty sharp. You know, it's it's a it's a you know, small SUV, but, uh, you know, when you look at that segment, you know, like there's a lot of cars in that segment that are in the mid, low to mid forties range. So it's not like it's a million miles away. Yes. You can get a lot of ZS in the, the $20,000 range, but so mm -hmm. it is a step up, but in terms of, you know, what you're actually getting the size of yep. vehicle and, and the powertrain, I think it, it's good value. And quite frankly, I thought it was, it was an okay drive. You know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not class leading by any stretch, but, you know, if you're if you're in the market, if you're starting to, if you're one of those people that really wants to 
make the switch to electric, then I think there's a there's a strong argument to be made for the ZS because because of the value and you know the range is probably you know we're, it's probably a generation behind now. We see more you know the better batteries in cars like the Hyundai yeah. like Kona. You know that yeah. its range is around 230, probably around 200 real world. But you know if you're if you're you know in a city dweller, if you know like that's you know, plenty. I found it. I yep. found it fine. You know, I found it yeah, fine yeah. to drive around, do the school run. You know, go to the shops. Like it's a, it yep. does it does the basics. And you know, like well, yes, there's areas that can improve. That they you know they could do some more with ride and handling. But you know, for what it was, I think it's a it's a it's, it's worth consideration. I've Fantastic. said it to a few people in the office that I think uh, MG would be uh, hugely <laughs> benefited by having the Hyundai Care approach of getting an engineering um, team to rejig the steering and suspension of their cars because you know on the whole these vehicles are pretty impressive um especially for what you're paying um yeah. like like you say uh steve there's there's zs models you can get a, a zs now for twenty two thousand drive away which is why you're seeing so many of them on the street because they're good looking cars they don't do a whole lot wrong um and you know they've got good warranties well seven years so it's it's all stacking up pretty well for them i think yeah yeah there was I, a bit I, of Sorry, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, it was interesting for me because I, I drove I drove the ZST uh, straight after it, um, and and yeah, I was impressed. You know, it's interesting. I'd written a lot of stories about their sales. You know, the the, the MGs are roaring up the sales charts um, and giving a lot of very established brands, uh, you know, a bit of a pain in the backside. But I can see why. Like you said, they're well presented inside. You know, like I said, the Cherry was was a mismatched disaster. But if you look at something like the MG, they've obviously taken Yep. You know, this huge leap forward, you know, as an industry, you know, mm. the Chinese car mm. industry, it's a well-presented interior. It's got good tech. Um, yeah, like I 100% agree with Matt that, you know, a local ride and handling program would be hugely beneficial to them. Or, you know, look, or alternatively, you know, they could, you know, there's work. I think fundamentally they could be better cars. You know, they're not quite mm. yet at the level of a um, what we get with Hyundai and Toyota and, and things like that. But certainly... Yeah, I can understand why these cars are so popular now because you, yeah. you know they're, they're, they're good, it's good bang for your buck, so to speak. I think yeah. it's pretty telling telling that in um, comparing the MG to other more established cars, all of a sudden Hyundai and Toyota can be mentioned in the same breath. You know, where where only a decade and a half ago Hyundai was still seen as a step below. I think Hyundai and Kia have joined. Toyota, Mazda, etc., as the mainstream, and and um, every bit is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think it'll take too long for these Chinese car makers that we see, like MG, to yep. be in that same sort of conversation. You know, I think they are yep. catching up faster um, than we than a lot of people give them credit for. You know, I Fine. think I think yeah. Where did where did you charge it, Steve? Were you just charging it from house power, or did you go to a like a charging station, or how did that work? No, I actually yeah, I actually charged it publicly. I charged it at the local yep. shops, you know, because yep. um, it was convenient. You know, I had to go to the local shops it's near my daughter's school, so I was able to sort of plug it in, give it give it half an hour of of charging it. Just generally speaking, just kind of top it up. You know, I never I never really uh, stretched the range because. You know, yeah. I go every couple of, you know, within, you know, three or four days, you charge it up and, you know, you topped it up in the way you went. And you, and you get the good parking spot. Yeah. Well, <laughs> assuming there's no Teslas, this is the interesting thing about electric oh, cars. Is okay. You, I've had driven it a couple lately and, you know, I, my other, my local shopping centre that has around, I, I don't know, you've got to guess 3,000, 4,000 parking spots, has a right. whole two electric charging oh, spots. Wow. okay. And yes. I, I have found in my experience when I've tried to use public charging, about ninety percent of the time, it's full of Teslas. You know, they, they, they are okay. they're a bit ubiquitous, yep. and so you end up with just, you know, it can be a little frustrating trying to charge when you're like, you know, these Teslas all the time just just have been soaking up all the juice. Cool. No, well, that's interesting. So, an affordable option, um, very interesting. Thank you, Steve and Matt. We will move on to yourself. We've been talking about Peugeot. <laughs> Lately, um, there's still a pretty small target in this market, but you've been in something that's a bit interesting. Yeah, so as you uh, can see, if you're watching on YouTube, the car behind me uh, is the 
Uh, new Peugeot 3008. Well, not new. It's the facelifted version of that car. Um, it's actually, I mean, I've always thought the 3008 is a gorgeous-looking um, small to mid. Well, it's actually a mid-size SUV. Um, and it's even better looking now. Um, they've managed to tweak the grill, uh, do some different stuff with the headlights, um, and it still retains the same sort of, uh, you know, chunky but um, quite petite. I don't know how that works, um, silhouette. And also the rear's mm. got new tail lights as well. Um, you'll see all this if you're watching on the YouTube show. Um, and it's, I mean, the thing with Peugeot, it's, it's not playing for volume. Um, and thankfully, because they would never achieve it with the prices that they're asking. Um, so the base model car, that's not the one you see there. Uh, the one I'm driving is the GT petrol. But the, the base model car is $45,000 plus yeah. on road costs. Yeah. Um, and then the GT petrol, that one there's um, $48,000 uh, plus it's got a few options on it. Um, then there's the GT diesel at about $51,000. And the GT Sport uh, is a $55,000 car. car. Okay. So yeah. It's, yeah. it is definitely uh, in the likes, in the competition zone against, say, like an Audi Q2, um, the Volvo XC40, the Lexus UX, um, all of which are slightly smaller um, competitors. But on that price point, that's sort of where you're looking at. Otherwise, you're looking at, um, very high-end versions of uh, RAV4, uh, Tucson, and, and Sportage. Um, and I guess the I guess CX-5 is one we have to include in that conversation as well. Um, uh, in a previous life, I've done a comparison between a CX-5 and a um, 3008 and the 3008 in, one. In that was... previous life, you were also the son of a sultan um, living in a, a very large... Yeah, anyway, sorry. And it was a butterfly. Um, <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> um, but the 3008, it's uh, it's an interesting car. Um, it's got the uh, Peugeot i-cockpit interior, so you have to sit with the steering wheel down low and look over the top of it. Uh, there's new screens. Um, the materials are all really nice and pleasant. Uh, it's a pretty nice car to drive. Obviously, there's the 5008 that sits above it, which is the seven-seat version. It's longer and has the rear seats as well. But um the, the thing I think might be the interesting point for this car is when the plug-in hybrid version arrives later this year. Um, there won't be a fully electric 3008, but um, a plug-in hybrid might add a little bit more interest and might be able to help justify the asking price of this car. But stay tuned. We'll be doing a full detailed uh, video review and written piece of the 2021 range coming soon. Um, so keep your eyes out for that. Cool. Cool. Interesting. Thank you. Um, I will chip in at the end here. I've been driving a VW, the new T6.1 T6 version. This one's a transporter, uh, TDI 250 manual. So it's the entry point to this whole lineup. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's the case, um, Matt. Uh, you are bang on. It's two litre turbo diesel, four cylinder, producing a staggering 81 kilowatts um, and 250 newton meters. But those newton meters arrive at 1,250 RPM. So look, just above idle. Uh, it's front wheel drive and it's 38,990 is the price. And you're getting a lot of vehicle uh, for that money. And actually, even though it's only 250 newton meters, you do get lots of pulling power low down. It might be a combination of the gearing and the engine characteristic, but it gets along perfectly fine. Now, I did not drive the car laden. It was it was empty the whole time I had it. But I really enjoyed the high mount kind of five-speed manual coming out of the dash. That's a bit of a Euro thing. I know some of the French brands are, are um, fond of that as well. Love that. Um, on 16-inch steel rims, which I liked as well, um, and a good ride for a commercial van, especially yeah. unladen. Um, it, it gets along and it's quite comfy. You, you're not compromised in that area. It steers nicely as well. And the turning circle, 11.9 metres isn't small, but it's not vast either. Um, and it, it will yep. turn really sharply. And you have a good driving position, which I was thinking of myself as being a tradie or someone using that vehicle day to day for work. Boy, they're they're in um, in a good position, quite literally, and you get yep. that side door, rear door versatility. I think it's got a lot to recommend it. The only the only niggles I could find with it really was the handbrake is very low down on on the floor, but you have a kind of hill hold function anyway. 
So when you're stopped and, and ready to move from lights on a hill, you're kind of taken care of on that score. It's a little bit noisy. Um, and the side vision, because it's a, a closed panel type van, um, is a bit, you take some getting used to, but the mirrors are nice and big and it's not a drama. I, I really enjoyed driving. I thought it was great. And JC, it's probably the only uh, car under, well, over $30,000 that has a five-speed manual gearbox. Yes, yes. And can I say that I did not once reach for a six-gear that wasn't there. I was, <laughs> I was so conscious of the fact that it was a five-speed and loved it um, that I didn't do that. But I just, I found it a really enjoyable experience driving that yeah. van. And I was constantly yeah. trying to get in the headspace of a tradie and thinking this would be paradise there were lots of little storage areas around it's got a cigarette lighter um, not a tall oh. outlet very naughty um so yeah i enjoyed it i thought it was great so, yeah. must be one of the few cars left with a cigarette lighter i oh, know i know i thought very naughty uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um okay now let's just move on to the feedback that we had after uh last week's show and we are back on YouTube, which is fantastic. So our listeners, on uh, our listeners as opposed to viewers, have, have been uninterrupted service. But YouTube, we weren't hacked, but YouTube thought we were. And we had some <laughs> toing and froing to get back on deck. But Chesto and Crafty got a lot of love um, from many viewers and listeners last week. And Anisu Brivakare says, finally, I can stream Crafty's beautiful face on the big screen again. Oh, and there was, a, there was a Cars Guide response that I know I didn't put in there. Um, and I've got a feeling, I know, look, I know who it was. It says it's even better in person, exclamation mark. Um, and I think that's crafty, a sentiment we can all, all agree yeah. on. Given, yeah, given no. that Crafty had taken it upon himself to answer a few other um, comments, um, uh, yeah, I can put two and two together who came up with that. <laughs> the other thing was... Cool came in and said, G'day guys, spotted another crafty edition four-wheel drive on sale by a Japanese importer. Now, we were talking, Crafty's background last week on the Zoom uh, was Les Hiddens in his Land Rover. And we discovered that there was a crafty edition Land Rover, little known, short-lived um, special edition that also had a disco mirror ball um, inside the car. So Cook spotted one. Uh, crafty didn't even mention it. It's a Pajero Mini has all the options included, all the boxes ticked, all the fruit inside and out. I'm pretty sure I even see the glittering disco ball inside through the tinted windows. So fantastic. And we've got pics of that vehicle uh, for people watching on YouTube. Now, part, part of what we spoke about with the LC300 was this new engine, 3.3 litre turbo diesel V6. And Hammer Rock says he's, he has no doubt that, that if Toyota says that it will outperform the four and a half litre um, turbo diesel V8 in the 200 series, then it will. But what he'd like to know is how it will deliver that power and torque. You know, will it be delivered at a leisurely and unstressed way as per the V8? Or will um, it be ringing its cylinders off to make power and torque figures? And that could impact its longevity and possibly its reliability. I think that's a valid point. Um, a very we, valid point. we were talking about smaller capacity engines like Ranger and, and Hilux, et cetera. Um, so look, in a way, Time will tell, but this bigger engine will have a bigger job to do. Mm -hmm. um, so good point, Hammer. Uh, Jaylene Andrews. Now, this is a really interesting comment. I think this person has some insight into uh, the behind the scenes uh, at Toyota. Would not be recommending towing with Toyota's four-cylinder diesel in the Prado and Hilux. The amount of warranty claims going through for blown turbos, diesel particulate filter, and cracked pistons is out of control. They're okay as a people mover. As for towing a 2.5 to 3.5 tonne trailer, snap out of it. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we're all well familiar with the DPF type um, issues that have been plaguing to uh, Toyota for some time. Blown turbos and cracked pistons sounds pretty tragic. Have you, have you guys, either of you, heard any of that? No, I haven't. Um, but that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Mm. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the brands are pretty savvy with uh, the sort of information they tell you about and and uh, dealerships um, you know if you, unless you're in with dealerships you might not know about these sorts of things so maybe that right. commenter uh, knows a little bit more because they are playing on the inside of the fence so that's to speak. right 
Yeah. Um, yeah. But so if, if Jalen Andrews is going by their uh, real name, uh, there may be an interesting <laughs> conversation in a service but at a particular Toyota dealership. It, it could also be uh, a group of maybe three people who have had a very specific oh, yes, issue right. and they make that's a right. lot of noise on a forum. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that has yeah. happened before. Okay, yeah, I mean, it could, could just be a you know, group of owners, yeah, car club type thing where situation where you get, you know, but that's, you know, if you're getting multiple people having the same problem, then that's yep. a problem, you know, that's yep. an mm-hmm. issue. Um, now, Sukhoi Romanik, who we assume uh, has a love affair with Russian fighter planes, um, says it's, if making a Gazoo Racing uh, on-road SUV, wouldn't Toyota better spend the money on a fast Kluger, a.k.a. Dodge Durango SRT? And that's, that's an interesting thought. Um, anyway. I think he's probably the only person who's ever had that thought. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Are we, all, are we also thinking Toyota has a budget problem? Like, yeah. <laughs> I, feel, right. I feel like they could develop pretty... I mean, obviously, uh, they've partnered on 86 and Supra, but, you know, I feel like, I feel like if they could want to develop a car, they'll, they'll find the penny somewhere. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Now, Oggy Oggy has uh, come out with a veil threat and said that six-cylinder diesel better be offered in a Prado spec. Um, <laughs> and... Christy uh, responded to him and said, would be amazing, but that would put the Prado almost at Land Cruiser price and spec. So what do you guys make of that? Um, yeah, I think there's, there's room for both. Um, and uh, if, if there was a, you know, a high-grade Prado, I mean, the current high-grade Prado is 100 grand anyway. So yeah. um, it's, it's inching closer. And, I mean, if you're looking at, what the, the the actual market prices are at the moment, you know, a high grade Prado is what a 200 series used to cost. So, exactly, um, exactly. I think there's a market for both. Yeah, I, I would I would sort of suggest again. Do we think Toyota has a problem selling Prados and Land Cruisers? Like, <laughs> there's no evidence that they have any issue selling uh, either of those cars in significant yep. volume consistently. So, look, uh, the know. other thing, the undeniable fact is, you don't want to cross Oggy Oggy. He is prone no. to uh, to wild behaviour. So, if Toyota's listening in, uh, just be sensible about these things. You don't want to <laughs> you don't want to poke you don't want to poke that bear. No. Um, but in terms of poking the bear, it is time to move on to Musquatch. Okay, first of all, uh, during the week, Bernie Sanders, now most listeners and viewers will be familiar with Bernie Sanders, uh, the, the curmudgeonly uh, Democrat who uh, was, has been in just about every recent presidential race, um, captured the imagination of various people but dropped out um, at a certain stage. He tweeted, we are in a moment in American history where two guys, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, own more wealth than the bottom 40% of people in this country. That level of greed and inequity is not only immoral, it is unsustainable. So, you know, many took uh, him to task on the greed bit, particularly, and the point being that Elon's wealth is largely a factor of Tesla's share price. So he's not actually sitting on piles of gold or necessarily rolling in as much cash as you might otherwise think. For example, Clean Technica came in and said, um, look, attacks on Elon Musk for his wealth are ridiculous. And this was on Twitter. And Elon responded to that saying, I am accumulating resources to help make life multiplanetary and extend the light of consciousness to the stars. Mm. That's what yes. he said. That's what yeah, I think. We, I think we can all get on board with that. I mean, that's, oh. just, that's just sentiment. I think we all share. Uh, that's why I'm. That's why I earn money. No, okay. I mean, put put in aside. Obviously, Bernie's uh, questions about uh, greed. I mean, that's a that is a that's a deep conversation in and of itself. I, I find this whole Musk's obsession with uh, trying to make Mars habitable a bit like. It's a bit like you know, house is a, is messy. You know, you haven't cleaned up in a while. Yep. Let's just buy a new house. Yeah, that's right. Let's just let's <laughs> yeah. just dump this one. And like, <laughs> there are some issues that we need to deal with. Obviously, you know, again, it's a deep political discussion. But uh, you know, the yep. climate change and whatnot. But you know, I think Mars is probably with all the problems. I still 
on Earth, I still feel that Mars is slightly less habitable. Mm. Um, there's a little bit more work oh, yeah. to be done to oh, yeah. make it more habitable compared to Earth, you know? Well, you know, it's interesting, okay. Steve, because Bernie came back and said space travel is an exciting idea, uh, but right now <laughs> we need to focus on Earth and create yeah. a progressive tax system uh, so children don't go hungry, uh, people aren't homeless, blah, 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 blah. So he was, he was literally grounding it in planet A rather than thinking yeah. about, you know, planet B. Mm-hmm. And Matthew M. Heitman, PhD, <coughs> responded by saying, I'm extorting resources to help make capitalism multiplanetary <laughs> and extend my massive ego to the stars. Fixed it for you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, and the, the aptly named Rich Ortiz says, the rich can imagine a time when they leave the rest of us. And that, I thought, was a really poignant statement. When you think there are close to 8 billion people on Earth by most approximations, not everyone's going to be going to Mars. This is about rich people finding some kind of other option um, to get on a spaceship. Um, And Liam said, you trade in apocalypse marketing for the wealthy. It's fine if that's the hill you want to die on. Just be honest about it. Mm. It isn't the electric truck for every man. He was talking about the cyber truck. It's the car for the rich to ride out Mad Max. Um, <laughs> it's totally true. Everything you does, yeah. you've got to pay for. The tunnels, that's not for everyone. That's not yeah. to um, find a new way of, of mass transit. It's for rich people to sidestep traffic jams. Um, now, then, Jared Yates Sexton, and thank you to Peter Anderson, who alerted me to, to this response, said, you're drowning in debt. Your loved ones are living shorter lives. Your friends are searching for food in dumpsters and about to be evicted, and Flash Gordon over here is accumulating resources to help make life multiplanetary and extend the light of consciousness to the stars. <laughs> um, but, Jared, uh, then, uh, what have we got? In case you're worried about people not being able to afford it, um, Elon said on Twitter in January uh, he intends there to be loans available for those who don't have money and jobs on the red planet for colonists to pay off their debts. So really, you're talking about indentured service. I was going to say it's indentured service. It's kind of of slavery. um, It's slavery on Mars, really. Yeah. That's excellent. Wow. So so just to be clear, slavery on Mars so you can continue to exist. Either die die here or work for your life over there. Precisely. um, Precisely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Matt, you sent me um, an Elon tweet, which I thought deserved a mention as well. Yeah. And he said, if there's ever a scandal about me, please call it Elon Gate, which <laughs> I thought was, you know, pretty good. But, and in fact, Illuminiolation came back and said, this tweet is the first <coughs> worthwhile thing you've ever said or done. Congrats. So I thought that was I, quite nice. You know, I, I, I have to say, that is actually a pet peeve of mine. Is everything every scandal becomes a gate, right? Right. Like, yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's one of the it's it's lazy journalism, and it drives me nuts because it has nothing to do with Watergate, and it has nothing to do with the gate. But I will say, Elon Gate is actually clever. Like that's you're, clever. You're just having flashbacks of Otley Gate, which which <laughs> actually played out over a period of years. I mean, I know you don't like to talk Look, about it, but James charges were laid. Uh, there was no, no one was said. hurt. So the things, look, things were said, things are forgotten about. Okay, I've still got the photos I, though, Steve. I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the document was binding that you cannot share those. And okay, yeah. I'm not even sure we could be talking about this. Things on the internet never die. Anyway, um, look, the share price for Tesla, which we normally uh, check in on, it's down $630, down about 70 bucks. It was 701 last week, and it actually is at the low point for the week. It's been on this, this trend. And ARK Invest, run by the influential, this is CNN reporting, uh, Kathy Wood, uh, she's a bit of a TED talker, a creative thinker, um, expects Tesla shares to reach at least $3,000 by 2025. That's a 350% rise, okay? Now, get what this is based on. That's more than double ARK's own $1,400 price target it set last year. This is on the basis of increased assumptions for Tesla's ability to efficiently use its capital of finance ambitious growth plans, factor in gains it expects Tesla to reap from selling car insurance, um, an upcoming robo-taxi, 
ride-hailing service that Musk has promised, uh, and ARC believes there is a 50% chance Tesla will be able to achieve fully autonomous driving by 2025, and that such a service would add $160 billion in annual profits by 2025. Have you guys now, seen just, the FSD <clears throat> beta videos that have been doing the rounds as no, well? No, like, fill us in. Oh, there's, there's a, a bunch of people who have got the full self-driving beta um, download um, and, you know, they're testing it, filming uh, the results and, and just seeing just how bad this thing is at full self-driving. Um, it isn't good. Um, no, it's level and, two. Yeah, yeah. It's Sorry, just, like, to cl- just to clarify, James, did that ARC statement, did they talk about when the Tesla unicorn is coming out? Or is that, that's right. That's right. That after <laughs> 2025? It will definitely arrive in 2017. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yep. It's a, that's like, right. I think that's a 100% chance. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, well they are they are kidding themselves. Well, surely. that's right, because in oh. October, 20, October 21, 2019, the dear leader said, next year for sure, we will have over a million robo-taxis on the road. That's what yep. he said. It was bizarre at the time, and it's even more bizarre now. So this person, uh, Kathy Wood, is absolutely drinking the Elon Kool-Aid. And Gordon Johnson of GLJ Research, who's been a frequent critic um, of this person, says, a picture emerges of a potentially flawed, misinformed model, in our opinion. (laughs) And putting it that basically the competition is going to swamp Tesla anyway that all of this is predicated on Tesla still being out as a first mover yeah. and on its own and no one else actually catching up. How, how many electric cars will be on the market by 2025 from, from yeah. these big, from big brands? From, Absolutely. You know, we've seen Hyundai Ionic 5 this week, the Kia EV6, you know, yeah. Volkswagen's announced all these plans to have so oh, much of its ID4 stuff. and on it goes. Yeah. But it'd yeah. be, they've already, they've already they just, they just have all those plans beyond the current yes. uh, MEB. Like, so they've, there's just the market is about to be particularly in Europe is going to yeah. be flooded well, with well, Kath, Kathy more affordable, well built. Yeah, Kathy Wood, like like Elon, is a, a pretty keen Twitterer, tweeter, and she was on there. And Ash said, "You know that this dream of AI-driven taxis on city streets, dropping you off at the airport, is not coming true in the next ten years." Hope you're making the right assumptions about the future cash flows. And another guy called Crypto Oma just said, keep stroking Musk and Razor, Razor Raymon, pump it up, pump it up, love it to the moon. As in, yeah. she's just trying to pump up the, the Tesla stock for whatever reason. Um, she, she's either refusing to kind of accept alternate points of view or just not investigating carefully enough because it just seems totally far-fetched to me. Yeah, Here's one. Who, who, hands up if you want to get into a taxi with no driver. Oh, that's like, right. Like, yeah, hard pass. Right. You know, yeah. Like this, yeah, it's true. This, this, but this but like, who, who wants to get into a taxi with a driver? Well, no, <laughs> this is, well I mean, this, but this is actually another question, you know, going back to, to, you know, the original point with Bernie was making, you know, we're effectively going to, you're talking about killing an industry. You're talking yeah. about getting rid of a whole job. You know, I was I was sort of curious with like with Uber drivers. You know, I'm, I'm, I always sort of have a tendency to ask them. So, are you okay with Uber effectively using the money you pay them to work out your replacement? You know, yeah, they, that's want, right. they want self-driving cars, and they're funneling this money into, you know, yeah. th- like things like Uber and Airbnb have you know sort of uh, sp- allowed individuals to take on you know a job and have this you know we've created this new economy. And now yeah. we're already talking about getting rid of it. I mean, look, obviously that's a more of a, a philosophical question, but I, I, you know, I just think personally, a, I'm not hopping into a car without a driver. As bad as you know, we may, you know, as much as we joke about taxi drivers, it, you know, and they're not great. No. At least they're, you know, there's some level of, of uh, default human uh, predilection to make sure you don't have a crash. You know, there's, but Stephen, you, you Stephen, I've effort. often thought, I've often thought, you know, okay. I'm going to get in a cab that is in pretty poor condition. Um, I, I know that diff was probably needed to be replaced uh, about 100,000 kilometres ago. The tyres aren't what they should be. The whole thing is kind of rattling and falling to pieces. The driver's horrendous, overly aggressive. Um, I think I'd be better off driving at 0.05 um, than actually getting in this car. 
But this is, I mean, this is why Uber has succeeded so well, right? Because it's people with their own car, so yep. they care about it. And this yeah. is my this is my argument most of the time with with uh, AI versus the human thing. And you know, good, I think it was Google that said, you know, they want to get rid of the human being out of driving. You know, yeah. so that's the key to me. I'm not convinced that's right. Yeah, humans make mistakes, but I mean. Yeah, I personally have had a lot of problems with technology. I think we've all, at some point, got the blue screen of death. You know, well, the, it's an it's an engineering spinning. it's an engineering approach, isn't it? Engineer yeah. out the problem. What's the weakest mm-hmm. link? Engineer it out of the equation. My- um, I remember I had it explained to me once by uh, during the Industrial Revolution, um, men's the normal dress for men at that stage included a necktie, and yeah. there were machines like lades or other things where these ties were being caught in machines. And people were being killed. And despite, uh, look, don't wear your tie, people still wore them. The, the, the human was the, the weak link. And a, a rest or a guard engineered out the problem. So it no longer, but so it's just taking that to another level and saying, take the human out of the equation. Yeah, well, yep. I've, I've got, I've got mates who's a software engineer who's like, I'm never driving a self-driving car. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know what I do. And it's, yeah. it's because this is the thing. We talk about it as, the computer f- removes the human, but the computer is programmed by a human. A human, you know, exactly. like I, yeah. I, you know, I found in my experience, whenever I've been, you know, confronted with a situation on the road that requires immediate action, you know, there is a computer in the car already. It's the brain, the human brain processes information, and I've avoided all these accidents yeah. just through instinct. You know, human mm-hmm. instinct is to av- like avoid harm. Yeah, right? exactly. And so yeah, yeah. you. You naturally do that. You naturally process all the information you need to process fast enough yeah. that it's okay. I mean, I, th- I think, again, it's a philosophical question, but this whole idea of a zero road toll is great. And obviously, I don't want anyone to die on the road. But we have to remember that driving a car is not, you know, a right. It's a privilege. You have to. Yeah. It's, a, it's two tons of metal that can go over 100 kilometers an hour. You know, you can run people down if you want. You know, like you have to have a certain level of responsibility, personal responsibility, uh, uh, you know, and, and common sense to be driving cars, you know, like, and I think taking that stuff out is silly. Yeah. You know? All right. It's a whole other podcast. Let's, yeah. let's, let's keep that one on the shelf. Um, it's interesting. Also, the only reason uh, Uber isn't profitable is because of its investment in self-driving. Mm-hmm. It would be a very profitable company um, without that. But anyway, look, I yeah. think we have reached the finish line. Um, and I want to say thank you to Matt. Thank you. And thank you, Steve. My pleasure. And thanks to our chief paper folder, seasonal mall Santa, and head of all things awesome, Mr. Pritchard, for his deft recording skills. This week, he's wearing a T-shirt saying, remember, if we get caught, you're deaf and I don't speak English. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump lift you up pants and a cap saying, IP in pools. Um, stepping in, stepping into his shoes on post-production this time is Mr. Sullivan, who strangely enough dresses like a normal human being. Thank you, Brett. Uh, let us know your thoughts. You can find Cars Guide on Facebook and Instagram or email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. If you're an Apple podcast listener, please rate and review us. Remember, you can always also watch us on YouTube. Isn't it great to be back there? And if you are already, make sure you subscribe to the Cars Guide YouTube channel so you can stay on top of all our latest content. But before we go, a nasty pair of jumper leads uh, walks into a pub, menacing-looking thing. Right off the bat, the publican says, look, I'll serve you a drink, just don't start anything. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) They just get more dad. Yeah. <laughs> I am a dad. Uh, yeah, that was good. Because jump leads start things. That's, that's the joke. Yeah. <laughs>